1: Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that the following podcast was produced for the Southern Labor Studies Association. You can visit the SLSA online at southernlaborstudies.org, and you can follow the SLSA on Twitter at southern Labor sa. I hope you enjoy the following interview.
0: Welcome to Working History, a production of the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org. I'm series host Beth English, and today we're speaking with Kenneth Phones wolf the Stuart and Joyce Robbins Chair Professor of History at West Virginia University. He is co-author with Elizabeth Fones-Wolf of Struggle for the Soul of the post South, White Evangelical Protestants, and Operation Dixie, published by the University of Illinois Press. Ken Fones-Wolf, welcome to Working History.
1: Thanks, Beth, for giving uh, giving me the opportunity to talk about our book.
0: Okay, great. So your book is Struggle for the Soul of the Postwar South. And uh, in the book, you focus on the role of religion, faith, and evangelical culture in Operation Dixie, which was an organizing drive in the South by the CIO um, after World War II. And so I'm wondering, um, especially for our listeners who might not have a, a good grasp of this, this era of, of U.S. history, if you could just give us a brief overview of Operation Dixie, Um, What was it and what were its goals?
1: Sure. Um, Actually, Operation Dixie was the the somewhat pejorative name uh, given by the media to the CIO's Southern Organizing Campaign uh, after World War II. Um, And and the context is that although labor had made great strides during the war, uh, the South remained a problem. Uh, mm-hmm. It had been an anti-union stronghold relying on a sort of competitive labor-intensive industries that were very difficult to organize. So the goal of the CIO was to unionize the South. Uh, first to increase union density and end the South's role as a sort of low-wage haven for capital flight, mm-hmm. uh, but, but also to change the politics. Um, you know, the expectation was that if you could get Southern workers in unions, they could revitalize uh, the momentum of the, the New Deal that, that had really uh, dissipated during mm-hmm. the war. Mm-hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. And why did the CIO think that Operation Dixie would succeed? Um, You know, as you mentioned, the South was really this kind of bastion of anti-unionism. And so how was this going to be different? How was Operation Dixie going to be different from past attempts to organize in the South?
1: Well, the, the hopes for success um, sort of relied on perceptions, maybe a little rose-colored perceptions, of uh, a sort of changed political climate. Mm-hmm. Again, i mentioned that the gains had been made in industrializing and unionizing the South uh, during the war. Um, there was certainly a, a notion that the Southern working class had uh, a good deal of support for Franklin Roosevelt and uh, the New Deal um, uh, uh, labor uh, laws. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and there were also some signs that uh, that the Jim Crow system was under attack. Uh, the white primary, the poll tax were under attack. The nation was operating under a Fair Employment Practices Commission. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, even a lot of uh, sort of very shrewd contemporary observers expected the South to become more labor friendly. Mm-hmm. Of course, there were sort of less hopeful omens as well. Uh, but, But if you were looking for optimism, I mean, there were certainly some signs.
0: Okay, so this was sort of the moment, if they were going to do it, this was the time to do it. Absolutely. Okay, right. So um, let's, talk, let's talk a little bit more uh, specifically about your book, which um, is based in large part on oral histories that really allow you to tap into and focus your analysis on white working class evangelical Protestants versus, say, ministers, which, you know, uh, there's, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of um, sources out there that you could tap into for that. So um, could you just give us um, sort of briefly, a sense of what the faith tradition was for these Southern evangelicals um, and how it was sort of rooted in their class identity?
1: Sure. The, the, the three major denominations in the South were the, the, the Baptist, Methodist and Presbyterians. Mm-hmm. Uh, and two of these had sort of distinctly regional uh, were distinctly regional denominations. Uh, but there was also a growing, um, you know, smattering of others, particularly Holiness and Pentecostal groups. Um, we we often think of re- Southern religion as as static. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the, certainly the notion that evangelicals shared certain beliefs. You know, the Bible is the sole authority of religious belief and practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that that everyone has direct uh, and sort of personal access to the Lord, and and that. You know, morality is uh, is defined in individualistic and personal terms, uh, but but within that the sort of basic agreement, there's plenty of room for local creeds and and certainly popular religious expressions, and mm-hmm. and that's a lot of what you get from the oral histories. What is it about um, the, the sort of um, evangelical Protestantism that that attracted and and um, and, and made working people see the world the way that they did. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's certainly changing during this time. You see a, a, a real shift away from the Methodists to the Baptists and, and uh, you know, from, from mainline uh, churches to uh, what, what some people call sects. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but it's very much a part of uh, the sort of southern working class culture.
0: Okay, and, and what up to this point had been the relationship between religion and labor um, in you know specifically when we think about southern industrial organizing?
1: Well, it, there was a long tradition uh, of uh, churches in uh, particularly southern industrial settings being under the thumb of employers. Mm-hmm. Uh, mine and mill owners often built churches, paid ministers. And if you've seen the movie Mate Wine, think of the John Sayles uh, character. <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, certain expectations about what, what they would preach. Right. Uh, but, the, but the depression really shattered uh, the complacency of Southern churches. Uh, you know, it really destroyed many congregations. Uh, historians talk about um, a, a religious depression uh, occurring. Uh, which caused many to question capitalism, and 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 also gave rise to sort of new evidence of a social consciousness. The Southern Baptist Convention, for instance, in 1937-38, um, passed resolutions uh, in, endorsing workers' rights to join unions and sup- in, in support of collective bargaining. Uh, the the Church of God lifted its ban on uh, on members joining unions. So so there was uh, there was uh, although the, the relationship had been one of tension for the most part. Uh, you could see signs of of uh, again something that uh, that that the CIO uh, perceived as a, as a new opportunity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And
0: so um, you have these evangelical faith traditions sort of um, opening themselves up in a way to a broader fight for sort of economic and social justice in a way uh-huh. that they hadn't been before. That's that's interesting. And how did at the same time did you still sort of see that potential for churches, um, in spite of you know coming out and saying you know workers have the right to organize and these sorts of things, still have the potential to align with management? Um, you know what were what were the you know the pros and the cons, I guess, of, of siding one way or the other?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, the cons are that, you know, it obviously divides communities. And, mm-hmm. and one of the things that churches are trying to do is to is to build a sort of community of believers. So, so you know, that that was certainly something that uh, and, and you see it frequently, uh, particularly in the responses of ministers when, when union organizers come. What is this going to mean? How am I going to keep uh, these, uh, you know, congregations that include the middle class and maybe even some mill owners, uh, or, or certainly mill supervisors with workers. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so you know, that's a that's a, a basic sort of thing. Uh, it, it's also the case that uh, while labor could see some hopeful signs in the changes that had come during the depression, you know prophetic radicalism, the sort of revival of a social gospel, Mm -hmm. they were also very shrewdly um, uh, supporting the development of a new um, ecumenical group, the National Association of Evangelicals, Mm -hmm. uh, which would rival the old uh, Federal Council of Churches, which had been very liberal and modernist uh, in orientation. Uh, so business is, is uh, bankrolling, really, the NAE, and and even preparing a list of uh, sort of scriptural justifications for the morality of the free enterprise, of free enterprise capitalism. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, it is. I mean, they they list uh, chapter and verse. So, wow. so it's really sort of fascinating. Um, but, they, you know, they're also... Their t- uh, business is also able to see important changes that are occurring during World War II that give them uh, sort of greater hope as well. Southern workers are, are better off than they've ever been mm-hmm. due to, mm-hmm. to uh, legislation. Um, and at the same time, fearful that of what further government intervention might bring, particularly with regard to race. And so that, that often takes the form of of southern evangelicals, um, being fearful that government might very well attack their distinctive faith traditions, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that if government has this much power, it might undermine, um, you know, our, our, uh, freedom of religion. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then there's a, you know, a really important thing that, that happens during the war. And, and, and part of it is the, um, you know, the experience of the war itself, the witnessing of the, the horrors, the tragedies that, that, uh, that were part of the war, fed into a sort of religious worldview that, uh, that the end times were, were coming, mm-hmm. and they were very near, and that mankind on, the, on their own was sort of in, incapable of making society better. Uh, So it gives a a real strong impetus to, um, you know, a different sort of of religious understanding of the world, which is you better be concerned with individual salvation now because the end times are coming. So Mm -hmm. so stop focusing on, you know, reforming the world and and pay attention to, you know, that sort of individual salvation that... um, you know, it seems to be a much bigger part of that sort of uh, post-war era. Mm -hmm.
0: So how then did religion come to factor into the CIO's strategic plans for Operation Dixie? And in what ways did the CIO see sort of tapping into these religious beliefs and practice and the context that you just talked about as a key to the organizing drive success in the South?
1: Well, certainly, business is. Uh, I mean, CIO recognized very early on that business was trying to exploit um, uh, the sort of elements of uh, of Southern popular religion. Things mm-hmm. like, you know, the emphasis on local autonomy mm-hmm. and, and self reliance and freedom of conscience. Uh, work as a sacred duty. Those are those are elemental things in uh, in Southern evangelicalism. So um, and. You know, as the CIO organizers went south, businesses sort of making a big deal of the fact that um, that uh, that they really are the ones that are are going to help sustain this southern culture. Um, so the, the cio sets up a community relations department and it draws on you know lucy mason and john ramsey both people who have you know real strong religious connections and they distribute pamphlets and speeches and make radio broadcasts discussing how you know the church is now coming out for labor and 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 trying to, to sort of contest this business vision But you know one of the one of the real Problems that the CIO faces is that they're often using people whose connections are to um, to northern churches and northern religious organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, the uh, Ramsey goes to the south and and uh, touts his relationship with the Federal Council of Churches. Well, this, is, this is anathema to, uh, to many Southern evangelicals. And uh, so, so, you know, they recognize the need, um, and, and this is a, I, you know, I, I don't want to say it's, uh, that, uh, that they're just sort of exploiting this. They, they recognize a real need, and, and, and there's a great deal of sincerity involved in it as well.
0: And did this, um, you know, this sort of connection with the northern churches, did this kind of feed into that rhetoric of, you know, the union are outsiders, they don't know us? Um, was that sort of something that, that then came into play?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's that's a, a big part of, of, of what happens, mm-hmm. um, you know, particularly if the CIO is trying to organize unions that are going to include black workers. Mm-hmm. And, and that's inevitable in the South. Um, but then, you know, it was very easy for employers and, and people that are, are nervous about what's happening in Southern society to say, these people, these CIO organizers really aren't um, interested in the South, that mm-hmm. they they are bringing on a sort of radical concern for interracial unionism and, and what what Mike Honey and, and uh, Bob Korstag called civil rights unionism, mm-hmm. that they... Are, are really um, interested more in uh, protecting the northern jobs, northern wages, than they are in helping southerners to improve their own conditions. Um, you know, this this quickly becomes entangled with the red scare. Right. You, so you've got an era of racial turmoil. And you've got an era where people are concerned with the, the threat from the Soviet Union. And um, and all this gets gets um, intertwined with employers and and politicians saying uh, these CIO people are, uh, are are coming down here and they're leftists and they're communist dominated and you know even the AFL, uh, which is conducting its own campaign, sort of taps into that. Mm-hmm. all these things made it very easy for employers to to demonize the CIO right. um, and to say, you know, these these aren't these aren't people who are interested in workers in in, in southern workers, and and in fact, if they're successful, it will actually hurt um, job opportunities for southerners.
0: And how did the CIO try to combat this? You know, what what was their strategy to kind of you know change the narrative, if you will?
1: Well, they, I mean, and again, part of it was through the community relations department, uh-huh. They, uh-huh. so that they. Um, You know, tried to tap into, um, you know, a sort of an alternative view of religion that that harkens back to the to the social gospel and to more prophetic radicalism and and certainly there were were people that could do that quite well you think about the um, you know the, the people that that trained under Alva Taylor at, at Vanderbilt and, and and brought this prophetic radicalist uh, vision um, but but th- at the same time they're also recruiting some people with seminary training uh, who have committed to a career in the labor movement, people like David Burgess and mm-hmm. Franz Daniel, mm-hmm. uh, to be key figures in um, in the South, and and every time the CIO plans a new organizing campaign, they send in. These individuals who have these religious connections in advance to try and and um, and meet with community leaders and and ministers in these communities and to say, look, we're not here to upend society. We're here um, to to really try and improve the lives of workers and and actually build the community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And can you give us um, an example of uh, an instance where this worked and then maybe, you know, talk about why it didn't work in in kind of the big picture?
1: Yeah, um, probably one of the best places uh, uh, that you can point to where it really has uh, some success. Well, there's two, but... Um, you know, around Gadsden, Alabama, they mm-hmm. see, they seem to go in, and Gadsden had this long tradition in the '30s of being sort of uh, a graveyard for organizers. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, Lucy Mason goes back there in '46 and '47. The uh, the CIOs had a number of successes, and they can sort of point to um, ministers as being strongly supportive of of the CIO and unions coming in. Danville, Virginia is another place. Uh, Right after the war, there's a a sort of red-baiting campaign of the CIO uh, and and several young ministers get involved and, and actually help. Uh, so, sort of set up institutions that, that encourage interracial unionism in, in Danville. They relied on a particular set of circumstances, typically, you know, large corporations that, that had northern connections already, mm-hmm. um, and, and also um, the, uh, the existence of some really sort of courageous ministers who, who put their jobs and their churches on the line to support the minister in Danville, who's most important, eventually gets chased out of town, oh. uh, loses his own congregation, and, uh-huh. and, uh, and has to leave the South. Another minister in, in uh, South Carolina, runs John Isom, who runs into the exact same uh, situation, and eventually has to leave the Baptist church uh, as a result
0: it seems that the, you know, the successes that you give examples of were not normative, obviously. Um, and so what were the, the prevailing sort of responses that then led or contributed to, I should say the, you know, the failure of Operation Dixie to really get the momentum moving for organizing and also using religion as, as a, as a key part of that?
1: Well, obviously, uh, the two things that we already mentioned, um, you know, are instrumental. Race, for one thing, is mm-hmm. is, is a is such a um, explosive issue. And if you think about Southern society right at the end of World War II, you have black servicemen coming back, expectations of, of having served their nation and that uh, and seeing other examples in the world where they are not treated as they had been in the South. Uh, so there's this tremendous sort of potential upheaval of uh, the Jim Crow system. It's very unsettling and and employers are able to use this uh, as well as Southern politicians are able to use this to say, look, they're going to, to support uh, racial equality and, and so on and so forth. And so that becomes very problematic and and the way in which the race issue intertwines with Mm Anti-communism. You know that the unions that had been most successful in promoting interracial unionism, promoting civil rights unionism, had been generally on the left. And so, if you have even moderate unions that are coming down, talking about, well, we need to we need to organize all the workers. We need to treat black workers the same as white workers. Mm -hmm. It sort of enables. Uh, those who are unhappy with these changes to say, look, this is a communist plot. This is a this is a leftist uh, plot to create um, racial racial equality and to have a society that's very different than than what we've had before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Those two issues, I, I think, um, make make it very difficult, and they intertwine with religious with with a religious outlook. I mean, there's some good work about. Uh, about how Southern evangelicals are going to be resistant to, particularly a, a sort of communist organizations. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. I think a, a sort of perennial question about Operation Dixie, and that's debated often, is whether it was destined to fail or if it could have succeeded. I'm sort of curious to know how you see your book, Struggle for the P- Soul of the Post-War South, helping us to kind of rethink that debate and how the factors that you've discussed, anti-communism, race baiting, um, the general economic prosperity of the post-war years, that are typically cited as causes of Operation Dixie's limited success. How does this help us kind of stir the pot a little bit more and, and think in a more nuanced way?
1: Yeah, well, it's really a hard question, and in part because you know our whole book uh, tries to emphasize the, the surprising contingencies that we saw in the oral histories that we looked at. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly the factors you mentioned, made Operation Dixie a daunting task. Task in any way, mm-hmm. um, but but you know certainly um, one of the things that we tried to argue is that the CIO could have done better. Uh, that they frequently ignored the realities of Southern culture. And, and this is true both for the moderates in the CIO as well as for the leftists in the CIO. Both groups tended to see things through their own, uh, their own vantage and, uh, and often ignored uh, what they were hearing from the workers themselves. Mm-hmm. But, but we certainly think that the CIO could have done better. However, for them to really have uh, a a significant chance of success would have required a far different labor movement than what existed at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And and some of the things that that, uh, we've talked about, Liz and I have talked about this many, many times, uh, because there is a tendency to see this as as sort of inevitable and and what what might have made a difference, Um, certainly uh, it, it would have taken a labor movement that would have supported... Regional labor unions uh, above national ones. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, that local focus of, of southern culture and southern religious culture uh, made them very wary of national organizations and giving up uh, their their autonomy to national organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it would have required a union movement in which leaders would have embraced building unions above politics mm-hmm. and again that's it, both on the right and the left uh, you know I, I think they're they're both interested in projects um, other than the main task of, of building union density um, and and one in which the AFL and CIO would not have been in competition right. um, so so all of those things unfortunately we didn't have a labor movement that was in that that uh, that 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 Conform to that vision at, at, at that particular time, but mm-hmm. but those would be some of the things that we think might have have really made a difference in um, in the, the possibilities for success.
0: Mm-hmm. And and given what you just talked about, um, sort of bringing your study of the post World War II era. More forward to today, what kinds of lessons do you think that we can kind of draw from this story of faith and organizing um, for you know for the labor movement today? Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you know, I, I think that um, that one of the things that that we learned as we listened to oral histories is that the people of faith have have many attributes that actually lean toward uh, sort of social justice in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a tendency to dismiss evangelicals as either reactionary or fatalistic, um, to see them as the sort of forerunners of the, the, the religious right and the, and the shift to a, uh, a Republican South. Mm-hmm. When you listen to these oral histories, and, and there were a number that, that sort of just spring to mind, as, as someone like Ralph Simmons, who's this guy who's devoutly religious, very conservative theology. Very individualistic and self-reliant in in the way he thought about his own work life and his duty to do the best for his employer and 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 believe that the Bible did not give workers grounds for unions. But at the same time, at the end of his interview, he talks about how there were greater opportunities for minorities and women, and that that was a really positive thing. Hmm, interesting, and, and, and that you know he supported welfare because we have to have something that takes care of, of uh, people that uh, don't have the same opportunities that he had mm-hmm. um, and, and another one that uh, Hoy Deal uh, this North Carolina textile worker uh, and, he, and mo- most of the interview is about listening to religious radio and believe that preachers should only preach the Bible and nothing else that mm-hmm. they shouldn't and, and yet um, at the end uh, or toward the end of the interview the woman who's doing the interview uh, sort of mentions that the pictures on his wall are of John F. Kennedy, Robert F. Kennedy, and and Martin Luther King. Interesting. I, I mean, what? It, where do those connections come from? Right. And, and you know, and and so when we dismiss um, religious people, we miss opportunities. And religious people have a strong moral compass that, that can be a powerful antidote to society becoming increasingly unfair and unequal as, as it is right now. Uh, and, but unions need to present a vision, uh, present their vision in a way that, um, that confirms those values uh, that are most important to, to people of faith and for whom the sacred is a guide for living Today, as well as in the future. So, you know, I, I, I think that there are, you know, some hopeful signs um, in, um, in listening to these oral histories. Um, maybe the way in which unions presented themselves was not appealing, but that, that doesn't mean that they, um, they deserve to be completely dismissed in their potential. To uh, to think about their communities as hopeful as hopeful, um, places.
0: That's great. So it gives us some some thought about potentials for coalition building. I think with different different groups that we maybe don't think of as um, potential partners in organizing.
1: Yeah, it, it it raises you know some some interesting questions about structure and strategy and w- the ways in which we approach people. Uh, and recognize, and the need to recognize what their own way of looking at the world, what what's going to be uh, acceptable to them.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Well, Kenneth phones Wolf, you've given us a lot to think about. And as we wrap up this episode of Working History, um, I just like to say thank you for joining us, and uh, we'll be looking forward to your next project.
1: Well, I really enjoyed it, Beth, and I really thank you for taking the time to uh, to, to do uh, all of these interviews. They're 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 wonderful um, podcasts, and and I'm uh, really uh, excited and honored to be included.
0: Okay. Well, great. Thank you so much. Thank you again to Kenneth Phones Wolf. Professor of History at West Virginia University. His book, co-authored with Elizabeth Fones-Wolf, is Struggle for the Soul of the Postwar South, White Evangelical Protestants and Operation Dixie, published by the University of Illinois Press. And thank you for joining us for this episode of Working History, a production of the Southern Labor Studies Association. Visit us online and become a member at www.southernlaborstudies.org and follow Working History on Twitter at Working History.